Lord, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12 this morning. If you want to turn your Bibles there, we're going to be in verses 38 through 42. Um, it's been almost a month since we've been in this series of telling me the story of Jesus, so we kind of need to do a little recap. Uh, back in the beginning of Matthew 12, the Pharisees have began to amplify their attacks on Jesus Christ, and it began when they noticed that Jesus's disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath. And so they saw this as a violation of their Sabbath regulations. And then we go on into chapter 12, and Jesus goes into the synagogue, and he heals a man with a withered hand again on the Sabbath, which made the Pharisees again feel that he was violating their Sabbath regulations. By verse 22, the Pharisees had decided to raise their allegations against Jesus and say that he was doing the miracles he was doing. He was healing the people he was healing and casting out demons all by the power of Satan, which Jesus points out that this is not only idiocy, but it's hypocrisy. Uh, if Satan empowered him to do the things he was doing, then Satan gave him the power to ultimately destroy Satan. It's from this allegation that Jesus says that we can know what is in the heart of an individual by the words they use. And he's really pointing this out to the Pharisees and the words they used against him, uh, that the heart is revealed through your language. And this brings us to verse 38 through 42. Our focus this morning is when in doubt. And we've already dealt with doubts once in this series back in Matthew chapter 11 when John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to Jesus because he was wrestling with the identity of Jesus. Was he in fact the person that John was pointing to as the Lamb of God? Was he in fact the long-awaited Messiah? But when we look through the scriptures, you're going to find that the individuals that God used, they all have a common feature. They all wrestle with doubts. They all have a doubt at some point in their life. The only individual in Scripture who never doubted God was Jesus Christ. We're here in Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees are doubting the validity of Jesus being from God. And through their doubts, they're more of accusations. They're ultimately wanting proof. And what Jesus says to them is something we can learn when we deal with doubts in our own life. So let's read this passage and we'll walk through it. The word of the Lord says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. Again, this is pointing back to what Jesus just said in verse 33 through 37. They said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Then the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This event can also be found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. The only difference between Matthew and Luke's account is Luke writes of the Queen of Sheba before mentioning that the Ninevites will rise up in judgment on, on the people. <clears throat> but the meaning <clears throat> excuse me, and implications of the passages are the same. The call for a sign from the Pharisees comes from Jesus' teaching words in the previous verses. What's ironic about their desire to see a sign, which means proof, is Jesus has already been healing people. 
He's already been doing miracles. He's already been casting out demons, which the Pharisees have all witnessed. They've seen the signs. So their desire for proof isn't coming from a pure heart. Rather, it's showing their intent. And this is going to be the remainder of their intent for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, is they're going to come to Jesus in order to test him. They want to try to trap him because they want Jesus off the scene. The Pharisees are asking Jesus to prove himself. Just like Satan came to Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness, asking him to prove himself as the Son of God. But Jesus shows in our passage he's not going to fall for their schemes. See, Jesus didn't come to be a circus show. He didn't come to entertain. He came to reveal God and to make God known so people could know the kingdom of God and salvation was hand, at hand. But one thing we learn in the midst of these accusations or desire for a sign from the Pharisees is when in doubt, don't live with the mentality of, what, of God, what have you done for me lately? Again, we have to keep in mind Jesus has already done several miracles. He's already done several healings. He's already cast out demons. He has taught in such a way that when people heard him, they were amazed and astonished at his teaching. Yet when dealing with doubt, we can fall into the trap, much like the scribes and Pharisees here, that we can desire God to prove himself once again. You see, when doubts come in our life, they create tunnel vision. They come as an attack on our faith. And they have the potential to only allow us to see the negative things in life. To prove this point, we can turn to a story maybe all be, all be familiar with in David and Goliath. Back in 1 Samuel, David is a shepherd boy. He's about 12 to 14 years of age when he actually faces off with the champion Goliath. He works for his father. He takes care of his sheep. But one day his father says, I need you to go to the battlefield and check on your brothers. They've been enlisted into Israel's army. And as David shows up, he finds Israel's army and King Saul all hiding because Goliath has come out and he's given this attack that send out your champion. Let me and your champion go to battle so there hasn't been massive casualties and massive deaths. Well, all Israel could see was Goliath. And in only looking at Goliath and hearing Goliath, they had doubts in their mind. They doubted whether God could take care of this situation. They doubted the power of God. So David shows up. He sees this spectacle going on. He sees Goliath, just like the Israelite army has seen Goliath. But David sees past the doubts. Because David knows that the battles we face in life belong to the Lord and the victory is God's. And so David decides he's going to go out and he's going to take on Goliath because he had faith. He believed God was good. He believed God was all-powerful. He believed that this giant of a man was not able to face the God of Israel. But doubts come in our life that can cause us to focus on the thing which produce our doubts rather than the God who defeats the doubt. <clears throat> Same time, when we're in the midst of doubt, we can begin to question the goodness of God that we just sang about. You know, when times get hard, when things are not going the way we think they should go, we can ask God, God, where are you in this? God, what are you doing? Would you just do something about this situation? And we become just like the scribes and the Pharisees there in verse 38. We come before God and we begin to ask God, God, you need to prove your goodness to me once again. You need to prove your authority. 
As believers, we believe God is the God of over all things. That means God is the God over our doubts. He's the God over our lack of faith. He's the God over every circumstances. He's the God over the situations which produce doubts. And God doesn't have to prove himself more than he already has. Jesus' response to the Pharisees when they ask for a sign of proof, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And this is what doubts produce in our mind and our heart. That word evil and adulterous generation means they're wicked, they're unfaithful. Instead of waiting and relying on God, the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to take control of the situation. They're trying to call Jesus out, prove your authority, prove your genuineness, even though Jesus has already done this. But doubts in our life can produce the mentality toward God, God, you haven't done enough for me yet. You aren't as faithful as I sing about. So instead of becoming a thankful child, we become more like a spoiled child who just cries and bickers and complains, wanting more from our Heavenly Father. Problem is, everyone in this room is going to experience doubts in life. You're going to have them. That's part of walking in faith. But Jesus points out how to deal with these doubts. In verses 40 through 42, Jesus points to two avenues in dealing with doubts. He points to the prophet Jonah, so prophecy, and he points to the wisdom of God. First, looking at Jonah. Now, Jesus' audience, including the scribes and the Pharisees on this day, would have been very familiar with the story of Jonah. If you want to read about Jonah, you can turn to the Old Testament. It's a book in the Old Testament. It's only four chapters, so it won't take you very long to read it. But Jonah is called by God to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. And sometimes we, we read over that. We know Jonah's supposed to go to Nineveh, and he doesn't. Instead, Jonah gets on a boat, right? He sails to Tarshish. And the reason Jonah does this, there's a lot of reasons, but one, because when God calls prophets, which Jonah was, God always sends his prophets to his people. But God comes to Jonah, and he commissions him and commands him not to go to the people of Israel, the covenantal people. He commands Jonah to go to the enemies of Israel. Go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. And this is why Jonah is reluctant. This is why he boards the ship. But if you read through Jonah, you're also going to find something about Jonah. Jonah was a racist. He was a racist. He did not believe the Ninevites deserved God's grace and forgiveness. He did not believe they deserved God's love. He even complains to God. God, I knew you would do this if I came here to preach a message of repentance. I knew you would forgive them. So Jonah's on this boat, right? A storm comes up, a massive storm. So the crew goes into a great panic. And Jonah comes forward and confesses, the reason this is happening is because I have sinned against God. And so he asks the crew to throw him into the water. And when he throws him in the water, the storm ceases. And then a great fish comes, right? Appointed by God and swallows Jonah whole. Now what's interesting about the story of Jonah is that there are some people who believe that it's only a prophetic parable. It wasn't actually an event that happened. It was not a real account. They bring questions like, how could a fish, even a big fish, swallow Jonah whole, and he remain alive in that fish for three days? But we come to our passage this morning, and Jesus points out that Jonah is, in fact, a historical event. 
It goes to show there are things in Scripture that we don't have to have figured out. There are things we don't have to have all the questions or all the answers to the questions. We just have to trust God, which is a huge lesson when it comes to dealing with doubts and dealing with unfaithfulness and dealing with the temptation to move away from God. So Jesus uses the story of Jonah to point to his own three-day experience, which is going to take place after his crucifixion when he is in the tomb. This is what verse 40 is pointing to. Again, the uniqueness about Jonah is he's commissioned by God to preach the coming judgment of God to the enemies of God. And if you're familiar with the story when Jonah finally gets on God's plan and finally goes to the city of Nineveh and preaches this message, the inhabitants of Nineveh repent. They repent. They hear this coming judgment of a God that they did not serve or worship or even know, and they repent. And the uniqueness of Jonah is God has sent prophets to his own people several times, but they never repent. But here you have the enemies of God repenting. So when Jesus says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up a judgment with this generation to condemn it, These are not idle words to the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is telling them that the people outside of the covenantal relationship with God that was established with Abraham, people outside of that covenant are going to stand in righteousness to judge those people who are a part of the covenant. And Jesus is showing us right here in the Gospel of Matthew, even in the Old Testament, God has been grafting Gentiles into his eternal family. It's going to become even more evident through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The people of Nineveh repented. That's the point that Jesus is driving out. They repented when they heard the words of Jonah, which were the words of God. And now Jesus says, here is something greater than Jonah. And yet people are not repenting to the words of Jesus, to the miracles of Jesus, the healings of Jesus, and the teachings of Jesus. What's so important about repentance? The Bible tells us repentance is the only means for salvation. To repent doesn't mean you do a 360. It means you do a 180. You completely change your mind. You completely change your lifestyle. You completely change things about you, and your heart completely changes. And so what we hear about repentance and Jesus calling people to repentance, we can get a lesson when we're dealing with our doubts, when we're wrestling When in doubt, seek the proof of your salvation. This should be the best way to combat the the mentality, God, what have you done for me lately? Think about your salvation. If God did nothing else in our life but save us from hell, that's enough. Even if we have the hardest life ever, even if we're going through poverty, even if we only have one set of clothes, If we can rest assured every night and every morning we wake up that we are saved and we're heading for heaven, then God doesn't have to do anything else for us. That is enough. Because sometimes we can ask God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? I was saved when I was about five or six years old. I don't know the exact age. Some people do. Some people know the exact date. I can tell you this, I was saved in a small community in a small First Baptist church in northern Missouri. 
I was baptized by my father. I was baptized with one of my friends. I remember that completely. I remember having a conversation with my dad. When I became a teenager, I became like the prodigal son. I started slipping away from God. I started going through the motions of Christianity. I would go to church. You know, if you go to church and people ask how you're doing, you say, fine, they'll believe you. If you sit in a seat and you stare at the pastor, they'll think you're really involved and really into it. If you stand and sing the songs when you're supposed to sing, they'll think, wow, they're really spiritual. But you can play Christian. You can play church. You can play the part of having a relationship with God, and that's not what I had. And so I started slipping away from God. And as I look back, I began to wonder, was I even actually saved? I began to doubt it. Did I even understand it at five or six years old? But as I look back on that situation, I know the Holy Spirit was inside of me. Because the things I did that I didn't want my parents to know about or anybody else to know about, I would make sure I hid very well. I would make sure there's only certain people around when I did the things I knew I shouldn't be doing. And that's the Holy Spirit that was convicting me. And so the Holy Spirit inside me, and, and I repented in New Mexico. I was at a college conference, and I remember I was in a balcony, and it, I describe it as God hitting me over the head with a baseball bat. It was 1999, August, and, or July, and everyone was afraid of Y2K. The preacher is Louis Giglio, and he says, well, you know, God may come back when Y2K happens, but he'll most likely come back when you're back in your routine of life. Come back in like February or June, when you're doing all the things you normally do. And, and he posed this question, if God were to come back in the way you're living your life now, would it please him? And so I repented. And I understood that my salvation at that moment is not an experience. I think we need to understand salvation is not an experience. It's a relationship. And what I mean by that is sometimes we can define our salvation as that, well, you know, I walked down an aisle at one point in time. I said a prayer at one point in time. I was baptized. I'm a member of a church. I give to the church. I read my Bible. But salvation isn't an experience. Salvation is defined by being in a relationship with God. It's defined by understanding that we're all sinners before a holy God and we need God's forgiveness, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. Salvation is an understanding in the heart, mind, and soul that we have a need for Christ to be our Savior And when we understand that need, it transforms our life, that we become into a relationship with God. Salvation isn't about anyone other than Jesus Christ. You can come to church every single Sunday and not be saved. You could read your Bible every single day and not be saved. You could tithe and sing songs and not be saved. Those are all good things. They're all beneficial things for a believer. But salvation is not about us proving to God that we deserve it. Because we don't. 
Salvation is understanding that God in his mercy and his grace stepped out of the heavens to save us from our sins and the punishment of those sins. It's about what Jesus did for us so we'd be saved and forgiven. Salvation is all about what Jesus, what God did through Jesus to redeem and rescue a broken world. A.W. Tozer writes that salvation is received from God and not achieved by man. So this leads to the biggest question this morning. Are you saved? Are you saved? Have you trusted in your heart and admitted to God that you're a sinner? And then trusted the fact that God loves you so much he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, to take God's wrath upon himself. He was placed in a tomb and rose three days later to show that he has authority and power over sin and authority and power to forgive you and give you eternal life. And then the final question is this. Have you confessed that? Confessed it to God and confessed it publicly to people that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Here's something you need to listen to very carefully. If you have not... The judgment that Jesus speaks of here in verse 41 is that you are condemned. That word condemned means you are declared guilty. It speaks of the day of judgment when God is going to separate people who belong to him and people who don't belong to him. And those who don't belong to God, those who are not found in Christ, they're not saved, are going to be condemned, declared guilty in their sins and they're going to receive eternal judgment in hell. If you're here this morning and you're unsure, well, I'm not sure. Or you know for certain that you aren't. And here in a moment we're going to sing a song and I'm going to ask you to come down and make this the day of your salvation. And to be sure that when the day of judgment comes, you're going to see Jesus face to face and he's going to say, welcome home. In verses 40 through 41, Jesus points to a prophet is proof. In verses 42, Jesus points to a royal figure is proof. Verse 42 says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Verse 42 is an event that is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 10. It also can be found in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. The event unfolds the queen of Sheba, which is the queen of the south, which make her the queen of southwest Arabia. Why is that significant? Jonah went to Nineveh, a Gentile city, people outside the covenant. The queen of the south comes from a Gentile nation or kingdom. And she comes to Solomon. If you're not familiar with Solomon, King Solomon was the son of King David. And when David died, Solomon became king. And God came to Solomon and he says, I'm going to grant you one request. And instead of asking for power or prestige or more wealth, Solomon asked God for one thing and that was wisdom. And God was pleased to give Solomon wisdom. Well, after Solomon begins or finishes building the temple and then finishes building his own palace, his wisdom becomes well known throughout the world. The queen of the south or the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon's temple. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1, it says that she comes to test him with hard questions. 
In 1 Kings chapter 10, we're told that Solomon was able to answer every hard question she had, and the queen becomes even more amazed about his wisdom. And what she heard, she tells Solomon, what I've heard hasn't even scratched the surface about how wise and wealthy you are. And we're told in 1 Kings chapter 10, after she has this encounter with Solomon, this Gentile queen praises the one true God. And this is what Jesus is alluding to in verse 42. Here was a non-covenantal ruler who traveled a great distance, approximately 1,588 miles, to meet and hear King Solomon. And after having an encounter with King Solomon, she becomes a worshiper of the one true God. And Jesus stands before these scribes and Pharisees, and he says once again, something greater than Solomon is here. He stands before these religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, men who are born into covenant, men who knew the word of God, and yet they could not see the wisdom of God standing right in front of them. With Jonah, Jesus reveals the wicked Assyrians will stand in a better position than these religious leaders. And not only the inhabitants of Nineveh, but now a Gentile woman will also stand in a better position than these religious men. See, it's not about where you were born. It's not about if you were born into a Christian family. It's not about if your parents are Christian or your guardians are Christian. Are you a Christian? Have you personally accepted Jesus Christ? Is he the only source of your salvation? And Jesus teaches us one more thing here in verse 42 when it comes to doubts. When in doubt, seek the wisdom of God. Here Jesus is pointing to scribes and the Pharisees who want a sign of proof concerning Jesus. And Jesus points to the scriptures. If you read through the Gospels, all four of them, you're going to see Jesus, he does this all the time. When people bring questions, when people try to test him, when people try to accuse him of things, he always points to the Scriptures. He always points to the wisdom of God found in the Word of God. And so when we have doubts in our life, when hard times arrive, when we're in the midst of a battle, let me give you some advice. Don't look to social media. Don't look to the news. Don't listen to what the world has to say about your problem. Instead, turn to the wisdom of God found in God's Word. Because God's Word has everything we need. This is what we're told. God's Word has everything we need so we can live a life of godliness. So we can live a life of righteousness. God's Word has everything we need to refresh us and renew us. Something this world cannot happen. And for anybody here, anybody you ever encountered who says, well, I don't believe in the Bible because it's out of date. It's not in touch with our world today. It's not in touch with reality. I would say this to that sort of person. Or I guess I would ask it. Have you even read the Bible? Have you honestly read the Bible? Let's think about some of the things that are in the news today. Roe versus Wade. Abortion. Do you know God's word deals with that? You think about gun violence 
and mass shootings. Do you know God's word deals with that? Maybe not with guns, but violence from one person to another. God's word even says how to handle such people who take those sort of actions. God's word tells us how to handle marriage, how to handle homosexuality. When it comes to immigration and dealing with foreigners, guess what? God's word deals with that. Before COVID even arrived on the scene, God's word already taught us how to deal with infectious diseases. God's word tells us about climate change. You know how it does that? Because God word, God's word says that this world is slowly fading away. It is slowly dying because of sin. So yes, the climate is going to change. This world is going to change. You talk about marriage, family, money, clothing, parenting, work, rest, relationships, war, education, music, exercise, nutrition, how to treat people. Guess what? God's word deals with it. Everything we need for godliness and righteousness. There's not a thing going on in this world in 2022. Not a thing going on in our life which we cannot find the wisdom of God dealing with it through his word. We just have to go and seek it. That's why God tells us as his people we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is God's word which is meant to guide our life as his people. So when Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here, he's speaking directly to the scribes and Pharisees, but he's also delivering us a promise that greater wisdom to live our life can be found in Christ, who we're told is the word that became flesh. That's John 1.14. Just to see how this played out in Scripture, when Satan came to tempt Jesus, What did Jesus turn to? The Word of God. When Jesus' adversaries tried to test him, he turned to the Word of God. When John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 began doubting Jesus, Jesus pointed John to the Word of God. When the apostles faced persecution in the book of Acts, They turned to the Word of God. When Paul wrote to the churches concerning righteous living, he turned them to the Word of God. We have this incredible resource. It's God's wisdom spoken through the Holy Spirit, written by man, that we can turn to and use. Turning back to A.W. Tozer, he wrote, The Bible is an authoritative book telling us what is good and what is bad. We need no textbook on ethics when we come to the Word of God. God has written the only textbook there is that is valid and binding upon all men. And I want to say that to bring this up. There's a movement going on known as progressive Christianity. You may not have heard it, but it's been in the news. Basically, here's what progressive Christianity does. Progressive Christianity seeks to take the Word of God And fit it into the sinfulness of man. And so what progressive Christians are doing is they're trying to reform God's word in order to appease their sinful choices and things that contradict what God has already said. 
And you need to know this. There's no such thing as progressive Christianity. It is a false gospel, and it is a false prophet. God does not progress to fit our sinful choices. God has already made his stance concerning sin, and it is not up for mankind to spin the word of God. Rather, we are to submit and be transformed by the word of God. This means there are going to be some who hear the word of God, and they're going to rebel. They're going to stand opposed to it because it's going to counter the way they want to live their life. You know what? God already said that was going to happen. Read Romans chapter 1. Because people want to be their own God instead of live under the authority of the one true God. And Jesus points out here in 41 and 42 that these sort of people are going to be condemned. They're going to be guilty when the day of judgment comes. But here's some good news. God doesn't want that for you. God came to save you. He came to claim you and adopt you as his own. He came to forgive you. That brings us back to one of the most important questions I'm going to ask this morning. Are you saved? Are you forgiven for your sins? I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. You can read it later this afternoon. Probably one of the more familiar verses out of that chapter is, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then it goes on in 24, is that they are justified freely by His grace. The word justified means when we come before God and we admit that we're a sinner, we believe Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again that we might find forgiveness and be given eternal life. And then we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. God justifies you. That means all your past sins, all your current sins, and all the sins you've yet to commit, it's just as if you never did it. Because God only sees you now if Jesus is your Lord and Savior in the full righteousness of Christ. And you're no longer condemned. No longer guilty. And if you're here this morning and you need to make that confession of faith, I'm going to be standing down here. Jackson's going to come and lead us in a song. And you just have to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. We'll pray with you. Celebrate with you. I promise you there's not a person in this room that is not going to celebrate with you. And the Bible says when one person comes to Christ, the heavens erupt. It's today the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for your grace. Your word says it's a gift. It's something we don't deserve, but it's something we have to accept. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to accept your gift of salvation, your gift of love, I pray in this time as we sing this song that they won't just stand up, but they'll come down the aisle and confess you as their Lord and Savior. Father, there's not a person in this room that's not dealing with stuff in their life. There's, we always are dealing with battles and temptations. Your word says it's going to happen. Father, give us a faithful heart. Give us a desire to seek after you. 
to pant for you as the deer pants for water. And you are good. We thank you for this day. We praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.